Welcome to the Stubborn Tortoise Podcast. I'm Donna Pazdera. So today's episode is going to come in three parts, and it's about those oases of food and drinks in the woods known as aid stations, okay? So the first part is called Sinatra Fireball and Atonement. And this happened about three weeks ago when I volunteered at a at the final night trail race at the Captain Carl's Night Series. Um, runners doing the maximum distance, 60K, which is 37 miles. They get from 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. to finish. And it's a beast of a course. And <clears throat> if you've listened to one of my earlier episodes, I attempted that 60K at the same place uh, a few years ago and didn't do so well. So, However, there are also 30K, 20K, 10K, 5K races that... They start a little later, and they still have the same 7 a.m. cutoff. And I was planning to help my friend Jeff and his new wife, Carrie, at one of the aid stations, but we found out a couple of people who were committed to working the Rock Dome aid station couldn't make it. And so that only left one person to cover a pretty busy place. And last year, Jeff and I had worked that aid station with a couple of other people, and it was really busy all night. So we decided that I should just go ahead and join that lone volunteer. Well, I found out that my co-captain was a guy named Chris Prairie, who (laughs) famously came through our station last year at the same race, and he was shouting and being cranky that he wasn't having a good race. And this was on his second of three loops, and so we were all just like, good lord, who is this guy? And so we were just kind of like, oh, we weren't sure what was going to happen with him, but then When he came through on his final loop a few hours later, he apologized. And so that made me feel better about him. So when I met Chris, I related this tale and we laughed. And I told him about this guy who came through my aid station last year at the J&J trail running reunion. And this aid station is the first one that the 100 cares hit. Um, which is 62 miles. And they hit it around the first six miles. And so just out of consideration, we don't put a lot of food on the table because most people who are running 62 miles aren't going to really need a lot when they come through on their first pass. And the other races start the following morning. So again, no reason to put out a ton of things. However, there was this guy and he came through and he looked at our spread and started yelling, where's the protein? Where are the gummy bears? Where are the Oreos? Of course, I was like, okay, I don't understand the correlation between protein, gummy bears, and Oreos, but whatever. And I kind of started feeling bad. And so I tried to make a PB&J for him, but he'd already stormed off into the night. And upon hearing this story, Chris got a little embarrassed and said, "Uh, that was me. (laughs) And we both laughed and I implored him to chill out next time. So as it turns out, Chris is a 31-year-old engineer who lives in Austin, and he really is a great co-captain. We split up our tasks evenly as we set up shop for the night, and I made PB&Js, sliced up fruit, and he poured the heavy jugs of water into the dispensers, among other things. And then he busted out some music, all Frank Sinatra. And I found it sort of weird for a young guy like him to be playing an old guy like Frank, but it kind of worked. And I chuckled when Saturday night is the loneliest night of the week came on. I could relate.
Saturday night is the loneliest night in the week. Cause that's the night that my sweetie and I used to dance cheek to cheek. I don't mind a Sunday night at all. Cause that's the night friends come to call. He was excellent as a welcoming party because he stood outside our tent with a pitcher of ice water and greeting people with, Howdy! What can we get you? And Chris's other hospitable move was bringing a bottle of Fireball, this cinnamon-flavored whiskey. And I've heard of aid stations offering liquor at long races, but this is my first time being a party to dispensing it. Um, It took a while, but around 10 p.m. we got our first taker and Chris poured the drink into tiny soy sauce sized cups and we both did a shot with the runner. Later, (laughs) I decided not to match takers drink for drink or I wouldn't have been able to drive home. I think we had, at least during my time there, it was probably had like about six to eight people. So yeah, go runners. Um, Just as an aside, I have done a shot of fireball at a winter race and it warmed me up which was nice and then it also kind of relaxed me a little bit I mean again you know this wasn't like I was on a technical trail or anything like that but nonetheless it was sort of interesting so I kind of understand the rationale behind all of this so anyway I found this whole experience with him pretty fun and we stayed busy and I felt like he was okay to run it solo when I had to leave after midnight and thank you Nyla Quinn who is the wife of race director Brad Quinn for nabbing me in Chris McWater's beast of a Ford F-350. Yeah, I've had to drive that thing before on that course and it's intimidating. This thing is really loud. You can hear it. It's like, and it's like, and I can't even really describe it that great, but yeah, it's super loud and you know it's coming and we kind of call it the beast. I, I admired the fact that Nyla was able to do this in the dark because it was pretty intimidating and even though this didn't end up being what I was expecting for that night it turned out really well so again working in aid station with somebody new was really cool so anyway so now I'm going to go back in time to 2016 March of 2016 to be uh, exact and this was a time when I was still living in the Rio Grande Valley and I was injured. Ugh, gosh, there's nothing worse. Well, I mean, there's a lot of things worse, but when you're a runner, you kind of feel bummed when you're injured. And I was supposed to do the race called Mesquite Fire, and I couldn't because I got injured. And so I decided, well, rather than stay home, it'd be more fun to just sort of hang out with my friends and work an aid station. So anyway, that was kind of what I decided to do and a couple of days before this race I decided that I needed a cowbell to agitate the troops because I've been to races and it's really cool when you can hear a cowbell in the distance and so I asked my friend Ben Martinez I'm like hey where did you get your cowbell and he's like I went to a feed store and so cool and I went to this feed store and it's called Martin's and it's in Edinburgh, Texas, which is really close to where I used to live. And it's also the place where I used to buy seed for my adopted pet chicken named Hen. Oh dear Lord, let's try not to, I won't go into that story. It's another story, but it's pretty funny. I did have a pet chicken for a while and her name was Hen and we were together for almost three years. So 
but she was also my spirit animal. <clears throat> anyway, I had gone to this particular feed store when she first came into my life and showed a video to this guy who worked there about, you know, what she looked like because I had no idea what to feed her and, you know, he pointed me in the right direction. Well, as it turns out, I had to, when I went back to this place, the same guy found me skulking in the aisles, kind of embarrassed, attempting to find the cowbell aisle. And he was like, whatever, you know, he's kind of unflapped. And he led me to the center aisle and pointed me to a pegboard with various sized cowbells on hooks. And they ranged from the tinkly tiny to the big Ben bong. And so I opted for the mid-sized version. Cost $12.99. On race day, I awoke at 4.30 a.m. to the sound of thunder and saw flashes of lightning as light rain hit the windows. And I had flashbacks to the race the year before when we were up to our ankles and shins in mud and water. And I really was hoping this wasn't going to be a command performance. Fortunately, it was not. But instead, the front that blew through made it ideal conditions for the runners, but pretty brisk for those of us who were standing around. And I was glad I had the presence of mind to bring along an extra long sleeve shirt as well as my rain jacket just in case. And as it turned out, I needed both. So I got to the aid station around 5.30 a.m. and nobody else was there yet. And I started worrying because I knew the race started in about 30 minutes and I needed some time to get, you know, set up. And then a few minutes later, my friends Orly, David, and Jesse came by and they dropped off our table water and four, two liters of Coke, and a ton of snacks. So Orly plugged in a portable disco light and ACDC's shoot to thrill roared to life in the darkness as we readied the goods. And then we discovered that we didn't have a knife to cut the bananas. So Orly employed a pair of scissors and surprisingly, they worked pretty well. And then we spent the first hour or so headlamps blazing, unable to see who we were actually helping, but runners zipped through. And then occasionally we had to yell to a few runners who were going across military highway and into the great hereafter because they missed the little sign that told them to turn around. Things got easier once daylight came and we could see who was coming through. What was weird was that no one seemed to linger and graze except for the 10 cares and this has been my experience in, in working on aid stations is like, for some reason, 10K trail runners just want to hang out and treat it like an all-you-can-eat buffet. <laughs> I mean, not everybody, but a lot of them do, and it's pretty comical to watch. And it's like, don't you have a race to finish? Hello? But they don't care. Um, nonetheless, I, I got into this habit of using my cowbell when I saw runners approaching. And they told me that they loved hearing it because they knew they were getting close to some relief. Then a little while later, Hoel, our last aid station volunteer, showed up. His role was to cook up quesadillas, bacon, and sausage for the runners. And then Orly, noticing that a package of mini cinnamon rolls had been largely untouched, had the genius idea to cook the rolls in bacon grease. The resulting creation was a filet cinnamon. <laughs> a play on the words filet mignon. And it was a cinnamon roll wrapped in bacon. Yeah. And it was a hit with the runners and the guys. But I stayed far, far away from that one just because I wasn't in the mood to clog up my arteries. 
Uh, as it turned out, the race was really fast and flat, and the organizers decided the night before that they were going to move it from the trails to the pavement in Caliche, which also meant that the course got cut by about four miles. So if you're doing a 50K, you ended up doing about 27 miles, which still is an ultra, but it's certainly not a 50K. <clears throat> so people were coming through at incredible speeds and we were like, wow, you already here? And many of them were treating it like a road race, just kind of whizzing through and then back out. But we knew they were largely ignoring their nutritional and hydration needs. And after sounding the bell, I'd grab a small cup of Coke and wait for the runners to pass through. And then I simply shoved it in their hands and said, take this. Trust me, you need it. And then most of them were obedient. Others were skeptical. And I explained that while I am not a Coke drinker by nature, I find it to possess magical qualities during long runs. And after they've gotten their cup of Coke, I led them to the tortilla warmer <laughs> filled with quesadillas. And again, obediently, they grabbed a triangle or two. And without fail, they behaved like deflated balloons that were reinflated. My friend Emiliano explained that the sound of the cowbell had turned him into a Pavlovian experiment where he began salivating for whatever we had for him. So part three. This is where I finally got to become my own aid station captain. I know, what a great title. I had no idea this was going to be my title. But yeah, so I decided to upgrade to from, you know, doing local races to the big boy races at Tejas Trails. So a few years ago, I think this is like in 2016, also later in 2016, and I decided, hey, I'm going to just go ahead and lead the charge. There was a new race that Chris McWaters, the race director of Tejas Trails, had created to sort of pay homage to the original race directors of Tejas Trails, which is Joe and Joyce Prusaitis, and it's called the J&J &J Race. And so I told him, hey, listen, I'd like to do one of your aid stations. So this one's called Bring Us Your Tired, Your Weary, and Especially Your Sweaty. So we stood there atop a rocky hillside looking at our home for the next 24 hours. A large canopy with three folding tables, three giant jugs, a couple dozen crates, and boxes of supplies and more than a dozen jugs of water and there were two huge coolers filled with bags of ice and a generator sat in the grass nearby ready to power our lights through the night and Jonathan the volunteer coordinator gave us our instructions and when we had no more questions he drove away and then I briefly panicked it was me and a couple of rookies left to assemble our aid station within the next hour or so before the first runners of the 100k came through there was no phone service at Camp Eagle, which is outside of Rock Springs, Texas. So if we got into trouble, one of us would have to run a mile or so down the hill to find help. And it was a little like the feeling of being a parent alone with your newborn. It all seemed so straightforward, but suddenly it felt terrifyingly complex. The complicated part of our aid station was that most runners hit it during their first 5.86 miles into the race, and then they'd go out, circle back, and hitting us again in the opposite direction about a mile and a half from the finish line. 
My panic was unwarranted as PJ and Austin, my 20-something companions, immediately jumped in and began arranging gels, pouring jugs of water to fill the five-gallon dispensers and generally figuring out what needed to be done without being told. And on the way up, they were way beyond excited about helping out. They were thanking me for the opportunity and I felt a little like Tom Sawyer when he persuaded his friends to paint that fence. Austin had brought some glow-in-the-dark necklaces and wristbands and he hung them from the trees in and out of our aid station. And we took bets on how long it would take before our first runner arrived. We were all wrong. Clearly, the course was tougher than we'd imagined. And the first runner showed up around 9.05 p.m., an hour and five minutes after the start. And we jumped into action, grabbing people's bottles, refilling them, and offering food before sending them on their way. I hooked up my iPod to PJ's portable speaker, and I gave the guys an introduction to my eclectic, sometimes chaotic, taste in music. That's a playlist of 85 songs that ranges from The Jackson 5 to Public Enemy to Duran Duran to Men Without Hats. Things were pretty uneventful until we saw a headlamp approaching the backside of the aid station, ascending a rocky hill. Our first 100 care was about to finish his first of three loops. The headlamp belonged to a guy named David Infante, who was walking it in and looked a bit, bit sheepish. We swarmed him and asked what he needed. He said he'd missed a couple of aid stations and was just going to drop. He looked okay and unhurt, and I suggested that maybe he should just drop to the 50-miler. I mean, I totally understood the mindset, but I wanted to at least push him to finish something. And he grinned and said, eh, he was just done. Maybe he'd run the 10K in the morning. So we gave him some water and sent him on his way. By now, it was approaching 1 a.m., and I was registered to run the 10K in the, in the morning. So the guys convinced me that they were fine with manning the station throughout the night. And I kind of wondered where the rest of my crew was, expecting them to show up and at least check in. But I figured they must have just settled into the cabin for the night. So I grabbed my pillow, sleeping bag, and duffel bag and began the mile or so trek back to the main campsite. And even though I had a headlamp, I was confused about how to get back. Everything kind of looked the same. Rocks, rutted roads, and general nothingness. And I walked through a sort of junkyard with all kinds of heavy equipment and a submarine. I swear to God, did I pass this on my way up, I wondered. And I walked toward the light of buildings only to realize that they weren't occupied or what I was looking for. And a good 30 minutes passed and I was feeling exhausted and filthy and wanting a shower and sleep. And in my mind, I figured if I couldn't find anything soon, I would just curl up on the side of the road and sleep until daylight. And then a pair of headlights pierced the darkness. I walked toward them desperate to ask for a ride. Two familiar people were inside, Robert and Mario, a couple of guys from my group. And they were trying to find the aid station, but not having much luck. So I hopped and they gave me a ride back to the cabin where Chris, her daughter Vicky, David and Joel and his daughter Bella were. I commiserated with the guys for a bit and then took a shower and attempted to sleep in my bottom bunk. And I probably slept for an hour that night. And I was awakened at five by the sound of the 50 mile start. And our cabin was directly across from the finish line. And then an hour and a half later, I heard the 50K start. So I just gave up and got up. And I got Robert and Mario situated at the aid station so they could help the overnighters. The 25K would start at 7.30, and then my race started at 8.30. And so I went to ask for my timing chip, but I couldn't remember my bib number. And I gave the volunteer my name. Donna! 
I'm Gabriel's mom, the woman exclaimed. I grabbed her hand and I smiled. It's so nice to meet you. I saw that he was running today, and I had made a best summer camp friend in January when I ran the 25K at Bandera, and I've been hoping to run into him at every race that I've done ever since then, but to no avail. This is Gabriel. So when we later lined up to start the 10K, I saw a sweet-faced boy with white blonde hair, who I'm sure was Gabriel. I waved tentatively, but he didn't respond. His hair had kind of grown out to shoulder length, and it appeared he was running with a bunch of young friends. So that's fine. My race, ugh, it was turgid. And mainly I was preoccupied with how things were going at the aid station, and I hoped everything was going okay. And then about two and a half miles from the finish, Gabriel and his group were just ahead of me, and I heard someone ringing my cowbell from the aid station. Hey, did you hear that cowbell? The aid station is just ahead, I shouted to them. Aid station, yay! And so five pint-sized runners scrambled ahead on the trail, excited, and I caught up to the group at the aid station. Are one of you Gabriel, I asked, and a boy pointed at the two-headed kid that I suspected was Gabriel. Gabriel, remember me, your best summer camp friend? He sort of seemed to remember me. And at that moment, I felt like Puff the Magic Dragon when Jackie Piper gets older and outgrows his childhood friend. I think being 12 had something to do with it. And for me, it was a big moment in my life. But I realized that little boys have a different perception of time and friendships. And it made me smile. And I gave him a hug and went on. And later, we were hopping across these boulder-sized rocks across a river when he caught up to me. And he asked how I'd been and which races I'd done. And I told him I'd been looking for him since Bandera, but he said he hadn't been doing any of those races. And just like that, he and his friends ran ahead, just an eye shot, and then they crossed the finish just moments before me. I was so glad that I got to see him. And after what seemed like an eternity of gathering me, Chris, Vicky, and Bella, we hopped aboard a Polaris driven by Andrew, another of the employees at Camp Eagle, who drove us to the station. And I spotted Austin and waved him over, go get some sleep. PJ had already taken off for a brief respite, and the rest of us took care of the dozens of runners coming in. David and Joel joined us not long after they finished the 25K. The day grew hot, especially when the sun came out, and a few runners had taken advantage of the quote-unquote late start at 11 a.m., and I kind of felt for them. David, in a genius move, filled baggies with ice and put it on runners' necks or heads when they came in. A number of the female runners wanted us to put ice down their sports bras, and guys wanted ice in their caps. And as the race continued, it was clear the heat was getting the people. Runners slumped into chairs while we went into action. Ice and tailwind or water in bottles, cups of soda on ice, snacks, gels, and salt capsules offered. And every now and then, people would just decide to quit. Some cried. Others looked relieved. But mainly, they were just grateful for whatever we could do for them. And there were a few who entertained us who came through. There's Ben, this bike patrol officer from San Antonio, who's originally from the valley. And he sported a large feather he found in his cap, which I thought was hilarious. And he was joined by Julie, who was perpetually bubbly. And she's the one who drove me to a medic's tent the year before, after I tore up in my knee at Cactus Rose. They were joined by our friend Crystal, whose laugh is like a five-year-old boy's. And she told us about how her husband James got pulled from the race because of heat exhaustion. 
And then she mentioned that he was projectile vomiting, and I was really glad to have missed that part. Runners seemed to file in in waves, and so we entertained ourselves when no one else was around. And much of this consisted of Joel and David making fun of things I said to runners. There was this handsome shirtless guy I'd helped, and I said something like, looking good. And of course, Joel had to embellish the story by saying, I can't believe you said that, Donna. You're looking good, real good. I do not think I said that. I think I would be too embarrassed. And the whole crew piled on when I did my day's push-ups for the 22-day challenge. Yeah. I was very pleased with how this weekend went. Everybody pitched in and then some, and no one complained. And I was proud of how we represented the Flatlanders of the Rio Grande Valley. And the experience inspired PJ and Austin to sign up for a trail race. And we've all been invited to help out again. And the best part is... It didn't feel like work. So the J&J race is coming up once again in two weeks on the weekend of the 27th, 28th. And I will be captaining an aid station as always. And uh, interestingly, PJ, like me, has moved out of the valley and he's up in Austin at this point. And he has become pretty much a fixture at these races in terms of volunteering and Austin, before he moved to Colorado, uh, also became a fixture at some of these races and running them. And I felt kind of happily responsible for being the gateway drug supplier to their trail racing addiction. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's just a great experience. I think everyone should at least volunteer at some point once you, you know, start getting into the trail running scene. It is you know, sort of an educational experience. You learn a lot from watching other people and you can use your own experience to help others too. And so, I don't know, I just, I I enjoy both. I mean, of course I love running the races, but helping out is also pretty rewarding. Also, one last thing. Last night I had some friends over for dinner and my friend John de la Garza was asking me about the music that I use for the intro and outro of this podcast. And I found it through a website that does royalty-free music for podcasts. And I was looking for something that's shoegaze, which is probably one of my favorite uh, genres of music. And it's sort of got this wall of sound, kind of jangly guitar sort of thing. And I heard this song by this band called Overlake, which is from New Jersey. And the song is called Our Sky. And I just thought you would like to know that. And um, I thank you guys and Our Sky for being part of my podcast. You may not even know about this, but I just want to give you guys a shout out. Love the music. Um, and it, it makes me happy to every time I listen to my podcast, especially I love the outro music because it's energetic and fun and and uh and hopefully you guys feel the same so anyway that's all i've got for now and uh as i may have as i've mentioned on my facebook page we are now dropping the episodes on monday um my work schedule is kind of weird these days so it just works out better to drop it on monday so until then i'll see you next time (laughs) 